All right, you guys, Romans chapter 4. You guys know we've been digging through this book, and that is our way. For those of you that are visiting, uh, one of our little things that we do, we preach expositionally, so we just go through the scripture verse by verse by verse. I pray through, we find out what book God wants us to be in, and right now that's Romans. We just completed Matthew, and we go until we're done. Matthew took us a year and a half, so I don't know how long Romans is going to take. We'll see. But we've gone through to Romans chapter 4 today, and last week, you guys, just to give us some context for where we're heading today, we looked at and we examined with Paul why God's wrath was being poured out against sin. We looked at the fact, you guys, that we are all sinners. You are so encouraged, I'm sure. And the fact, too, Paul brings out that every sinful act demands God's justice. Why? Because, guys, sin is, is less than perfect, isn't it? By definition, it's less than perfect. God is perfect. Do you understand why there needs to be justice in the world? Why God's justice exists? It exists because sin exists. And we need to get our head around this. And I've said it before, and I'll be saying it a million more times, you guys. God is not mad at humanity, but he hates sin. And so if you're here today and you're not a believer, I need you to hear this. God doesn't hate you. Quite the opposite. He loves you. He loves you with all of him. He loves you so, so much that he sent himself in the form of Jesus to come and die for you. Why? Because you couldn't do it on your own. And we're going to talk more about that today. We kind of talk about that every time we get together, don't we? That's really the whole point. You guys, next to his perfection, there's got to be a sacrifice in order for us to be in a relationship with him because of his justice. And the great news that we talked about was that God knew that we were going to jack it up before he ever created us, and yet he created us anyway. Aren't you thankful? And he made a way for us through Jesus. And today we're going to examine the next question, right? We talked about this idea that Paul loves to bring up a question that he thinks you might have, and then he answers his own question, right? He answers the question that he thinks that the people in Rome might have had, that the Jews might have had, that all these different groups, and even us here, we're going to get some more questions and we're going to look at him. And so he's saying, okay, look, we examined last week this idea that, you know, the Jews and their uh, circumcision really was worth nothing. And the whole idea of the law wasn't really meant to bring you to perfection. It was meant to show you that you'll never be perfect to bring you to the need for a savior. That was the whole point of all of it. And so here's the questions we're going to look at today. If that's true, then is the, whole te the Old Testament way of living under the law worthless? Is all that worthless? Is it completely irrelevant? If we're not justified by the law, then what are we justified by? Because there has to be some justification that, that kind of fulfills God's justice. You get this? Very legal terms, aren't they? Theologically, you guys, justified means this, declared or made righteous in the sight of God. Declared or made righteous in the sight of God. Justified. We're going to be taking a deep dive into those questions today. You guys ready? You guys, <laughs> chapter 4, verse 1, let's start reading here. It says this. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, 
and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So remember, this is based off that question that he was asking right here at the end of chapter, of chapter 3, verse 31, where he says, do we, not make, uh, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And he goes right then into this Abraham, right? A guy that all the Jews knew. When I say George Washington, and you've spent any amount of time in America, I would even say if I say George Washington and you live in any country in the world, it's a known name, right? It's like if I say the Dalai Lama. You don't have to be from wherever he's from to, (laughs) I think India, right? Am I right? You don't have to, right? Everybody knows that name. Mahatma Gandhi, right? There's there's names that everybody knows. Abraham for the Jews, he was well-known. He was bigger than George Washington. He was like the godfather. Not in the Martin Scorsese sense. He wasn't going to make an offer that you couldn't refuse. But Paul starts off here with the godfather of this whole thing, like the the guy that's kind of like the big kahuna, the guy that everybody would know and look at and say, look, that guy right there, he was a righteous man. That guy right there, he was good. Like he, look at what God gave him. Look at, look at, look at, we're a result of him, right? Right? Abraham. You guys know the story about Abraham, right? It's all through Genesis. This guy that was a pagan living in the land of Ur and Haram. Living in the land or Haram. I don't know how you say it. So the fact is, you guys, this guy, so my wife and I both, we actually met in Iraq. We met at Talil Air Force Base in Iraq. And when we met there, right outside of that base was where Abraham was born. It's Ur. It's, it's, the ancient Ur. And there's this huge like pyramid that has no top on the top, right? It's called a uh, ziggurat. Thank you. Yes. It's called a ziggurat. And it's, it's there. You can see it from anywhere. And this is, I, I, I'm not trying to toot the Air Force's horn, but we launched a lot of weapons and as did the Navy. And, and guess what? That ziggurat's still standing. But the base that we were on was an Iraqi base. That thing was blown to bits. It's just kind of cool that we protect those things because guess what, you guys? That is the history of who Abraham is. That's, that's his history. That's where he started. And on that ziggurat on the top would have been a normal temple that had been you know, fallen down over the years. It's not there any longer. But they would do things that were very pagan there. But here he is, obviously, trying to understand what this whole world was about, and he wasn't satisfied with the worship of these false gods. Nowhere in scripture does it necessarily say that, but do you understand that if we are seeking truth, God will show up? Do you understand that? There's a big difference between people like, I just want to know, you know, this thing, and so I'm going to go on a vision quest. That isn't seeking truth. That's just wanting to worship yourself, so you're doing it in some weird way. But I have no problem with someone that's like, I want to know the truth, And I don't know if it's this yet. You know what? I'm like, that's okay. You keep searching. I promise you God will show up. God's going to lead you to Christ. God's going to lead you. And and let me help you if I can, right? But here's this guy, Abraham. And he wasn't worshiping. He wasn't satisfied with what was happening. And so he sought to know God. And guess what? God spoke to him. And we see this from Genesis chapter 13 to chapter 25 for you note takers it talks about this relationship that Abraham had with God. Here's the cliff notes. I would encourage you guys to go back and read those chapters this week. It's, it's an awesome blessing. And we learn a lot from it. But here's the cliff notes. Ready? Abraham was got, called by God to, to leave where he was living. He was called to leave, and so he left. 
He let God take charge of his life. We need to hear this. Abraham didn't say, so lay out the five-year plan for me, God. Right? How's this all going to look? I, I need to know before I take one step out of here. No, he was like, you're telling me to go? Okay, where? That way? Okay, generally, I'll walk that way. And that's what he did. And he just walked around. And God showed him stuff as he walked around, right? That's kind of the Cliff Snows version. In the process of that, he would come across kings that were very powerful. And Abraham, we know, was a pretty wealthy man. And he kept making more wealth. How? Well, then this weird way that God blessed him in spite of his sin, because he would say to his wife, dude, say you're my sister because I don't want to die. And put her in a place where she had to lie and almost be put into compromising positions situations, right? Because the king was like, hey, you're hot. I like you. Happened two different times. And both times they would come to find out that Abraham, right? And, uh, and Sarah were actually married. And guess what? The kings, I don't know why the kings weren't just like, well, I'm going to kill you and take you out. I mean, to me, I would want to take him out just because he lied to me, let alone the fact that his wife was attractive and I liked her. Do you know what I'm saying? If I was a pagan, but no, God used it. And they were like this, here, take money and leave. <laughs> Abraham's like, mm, okay. What am I getting at, you guys? Abraham did a lot of good things and a lot of bad things. Sound familiar? Does it sound like the rest of us? He did both good, and you're going to read both good and bad throughout these chapters. I'll even go this far. He doubts the call of God on his life. He gets, he gets to a place sometimes where God's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just make you a, a father of all these nations. And he's like, how? God, you made me, dude. You know I'm like 100 years old, literally. You know my wife's never had a kid. Like, what? how's this going to happen? So it wasn't like he didn't, he walked in just complete like, man, everything's good. I've got this. Yes, Lord, I just completely trust you. But he did overarchingly absolutely trust God. Does that make sense? What am I trying to say? It's okay sometimes to be like, God, your word says this, but I'm just not seeing it. God, I, I trust you. I trust you, God. I trust you even though everything uh, on the, you know, the temporal plane is kind of not making any sense with what you're saying. I know that you exist outside of time. I know that you know what's up. I know that you are truly God and that I am truly not. And so I trust you in spite of the fact that, yeah, I'm coming to you honestly because you're my father and saying, I don't get it. I don't understand it, Lord. Flip over with me to Genesis chapter 15. What was the biggest doubt that Abraham had? And we see growth in this that we won't necessarily get into today, but the fact is, you guys, Abraham grew in his faith just like we all do. But here's where he starts. He, he says to God, he's like, man, how are you going to make me anything when I have no heir? And we're too old to have a kid. So what, what are you thinking right now, God? I don't get it. Chapter 15 in Genesis, verse 1 says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar, which was a slave of his, of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you give me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall not be your heir. The one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. 
Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. This is the key point here, verse six. And he believed in the Lord. And he, the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. He believed in the Lord. Did he have doubts? Yep. But overarchingly, he's still like, you know what's up and I don't. You guys, do you see the point that Paul's making in bringing up Abraham? Do you follow the logic here? He's saying, Abraham, Abraham's works didn't bring him anything. The name of the message today is your works don't work. Your works don't work. That's the point Paul's making. What are we justified by? Well, we'll talk about it in a minute. I'm not going to give it away. You guys, Abraham's works didn't bring him anything. It was his belief in God that was the most important point. The belief in God, and I need us to understand this word before we go forward from here. Belief is not a mental assent to a man upstairs. There's a lot of people, I would say there's even some Christians that I've met that I think have this belief in something that's higher than them, but really don't want to give it any more latitude or any more brain space than to admit that they're not number one, and that's about the end of it. That's not belief. That's recognition that you're an ant, right? And the fact is that if you go up into outer space, are you going to live without a spacesuit? No, you're going to die. How are you going to get there, you guys? You're not going to just fly up there. We're not supermen. Do you understand? This world around us shows us that we're not number one. We might be number one on the food chain, uh, depending on the situation we find ourselves in and with what weapons we have, right? But we are not number one. There's something higher than us. So that's an obvious. How many world religions do we have? I mean, come on. That's painfully obvious that we're not number one. So that is not belief in God that we're talking about here. It's not just an acknowledgement of something that's bigger in you. Belief, you guys, in the Greek, the word is pisteo, and it means this, committing yourself entirely to or putting complete faith in something or someone bigger than you. Hear that. Committing yourself entirely to or putting complete and full faith in someone or something higher than you. You guys, I didn't create this earth, but I know this. I believe. I completely commit myself to it, and I have complete faith that when I take this next step, there's going to be something underneath me when I step there because I see that there's ground here, and I have complete belief that this ground will hold me here, that I'm not just going to suddenly fall into an abyss. Now, that is true 99.99% of the time, right? The analogy breaks down because I was actually thinking, I'm like Paul, I'm always thinking questions of my own. And I'm like, yeah, well, what if I step and there's a pothole there and I just fall into nothing like we see cars doing lately, right? Especially down in South America. So it's not like that's always 100% true, but do you get it? Does anyone doubt that? Are we, are we pretty confident when we walk out our front door that we're going to be able to walk to the car and get in it because the ground's going to be underneath our feet? That's something we believe in, we fully commit to. Why? Because if we didn't, we wouldn't walk out our front door, would we? I believe, you guys, that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. I don't believe that if I get near to the edge of a cliff that I'm going to remain safe right? And there might be people here that are not nearly as afraid of heights as I am, and they may be like, you're far, 
fine. Well, you, you can be fine. I'm not going to be fine. I'll be like, ha, ha, ha. that'll be the end of me. Listen, here's another thing I don't believe. I need you all to hear this. I don't believe that I am 100% guaranteed to wake up tomorrow morning. That's not on my, my radar of choice. Not on your radar of choice either. We can't believe that. Too often, you guys, people don't understand the difference. Too often, even people in church say they believe, but they're really, they're really just giving mental assent to something that's bigger than them. Mother Earth. Right? They might not use those words. They might use the word God, but whenever you really dig down deep, it's like, if you believe in God, then that means that you've got to believe in Christ. They go hand in hand. They co- they, they're perfectly, they're one. <laughs> you can't have one without the other. So we talk about believing in God. We're talking about complete commitment to him. We're talking about putting our faith entirely in him, not in anything you have to offer that's going to get you to heaven. That's the point of the entirety of today's message. So Paul tells us that Abraham's belief, his faith in God was the only thing that was accounted to him for righteousness. It wasn't any other thing. It wasn't like, oh, wow, you did really good that one day, Abraham. Good for you. You built up the bank account to 100. But when you lied about your wife, mm, you're down about negative 500. Oh, but then the other day, you gave a sheep to somebody that needed it. Good for you. That's plus 50. So you're only down negative 450. Do you understand? How many of us do that stuff? In the church and outside the church, most definitely. Because if you have no concept of God's grace, then you're always on this sliding scale of how good or bad am I. But I've heard it too often in the church. I've heard it too often. Oh man, God's really far from me. That is an oxymoronic statement. He is omnipresent, which means he's right beside you when you're sinning and when you're sleeping, when you're doing amazing and when you're thinking the most horrible thought, he's there. And if you're a Christian, he lives in you. You cannot get away from him. Don't believe the lie that, sent him, that Satan wants to sell us that like, oh man, you screwed up. The enemy, you know, you're, God's far from you. No. You know how far away he is? One breath. Repent. God, forgive me. He's like, okay, I will. That's it. It's not because of anything Abraham did. It's because he believed. Verse four. Now to him who works the wages are counted as grace. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You guys, these two verses are a huge bombshell. I need you to hear this. They were a huge bombshell to the people then, and they still are today. Paul wrecks the very fabric of the Jewish kind of religious state. He wrecks the very fabric of the legalistic Christian's view of how things work, doesn't it? It has nothing to do with your works. That's what he's saying. Like, let's break this down. What's he saying? He's saying, now to him who works... The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. How many people here have a job? When you work, are you like, oh man, I just can't wait to get to the end of the week and not get a paycheck because I've just got grace being poured out over my life. No, you're working because you're expecting 
a wage at the end. They are indebted to you for the 40 hours or however many hours you're putting in, right? That's what he's saying. If your works are what gets you there, then God is a debtor to you. Is that true? Not at all. He owes us nothing. If anything, we deserve hell. That's what we deserve. Any other thing is mercy and grace. So if our works, we think somehow church or anyone outside the church thinks like, well, I've got to get better before I come to church or I've got to fix this or Christians, we hear this a lot. Man, I got to really work on this porn addiction. Man, I got to stop smoking so much weed. Ah, dude, you know I keep drinking so much. Can you help me stop God? And he's going to hear that prayer. But listen, if you're the one that's being like, I've got to muster it up. uh, That's not going to give you any value, man. And I don't know about you, and I don't know too much, but I do know this. The more I think about not doing something, the more I want to do it. Isn't that what Paul said? Man, the things I want to do, I find myself not doing, and the things I don't want to do, boy, they're easy. It's obviously not true for us. It's, it, the truth is, you guys, we fall flat before the Lord, and we're like, oh, God, you know this wretched person. You know me. You know me better than I know me. I'm only bringing the stuff that comes to my mind. You know the rest of it. I need you. Paul's saying, man, if you're doing your work, it's not counted as grace, but as debt. And God is not in debt to you. You have an expectation of compensation. Listen, for people that think their good works make a difference, they're relying and believing, and they're not believing in God's grace, are they? They don't go together. They're laying a debt on God. We see this way of thinking, you guys. I'm, I'm going to maybe burst some bubbles here. And I, sorry, not sorry. Health and wealth teaching is full of this. God, I have so much faith. I have, Lord, my faith is huge. I've been working it out. I've got 20-pound dumbbells building up my faith, God. You can't deny what I'm asking you for. This Porsche, it better be in my driveway in the morning, Lord, because you owe me. My faith is huge. Don't we hear that a lot in the health and wealth gospel? Guys, it's not right. It's not biblical. It doesn't line up. And not only that, but again, let's go back to the definition of faith. Most health and wealth gospel people, when you hear them talk, it sounds like they have faith in their faith, not in God. (laughs) I've got faith that my faith is big. What what does that even mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's a worthless statement. I have faith that God is in charge, and I know that his will is what I want for my life. And you know what that might mean? Abject poverty living in a third world country. And I want that if that's what God wants me to do. And if God sees fit to give me a Porsche, man, I'm going to run the wheels off that sucker. You get my point? But I want what God wants for me, not what I want. We see it in legalistic churches, don't we? (laughs) Listen, I'm not picking on churches and being like, and look at us, we're so good. No, because I think in this church, we have a mix of all that, if I'm being honest. In my own heart, sometimes I have a mix of all these things. So I'm not acting like, look at us and look at everybody else. No, not at all. I'm just trying to point to these things that I see that I'm like, man, this is where I think we, the church, have kind of got it wrong. Legalistic churches that say we only read the correct Bible translation. The 1611 King James Bible was good enough for the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Right? We're the squeakiest clean church you've ever seen. No coffee lives in our sanctuary. Oh, man, that's shameful. That's sad. You know, God owes us heaven. 
Look at this effort we have that we've put forth to show how holy we are. We don't have any instruments except piano and organ. That's all we read about in the book of Psalms, you know. Have you guys been to churches like that? I erased this, but I'm going to say it. I actually had one time. I had one time. I'm a drummer. You guys heard that. I love percussion. And if you actually read the book of Psalms, man, listen. Like, it, it, I'm going to make myself, I'm going to insult myself. You ready? I would say, yes, is there some level of skill to move all four limbs at the same time and make it work? Yes. But the reality is, I go like this, bang, and I hit stuff. Clash, clash. You read that all through Psalms, don't you? Crashing symbols, all these things. Why? Because humanity figured out pretty early that you can go like this, and it's like, well, that sounds nice. <laughs> Takes more skill to play piano or more or, or guitar or bass guitar, right? It's like you've got to actually process notes. There's more skill there. You get my point? So the point I'm making is, you guys, I had someone tell me that drums were obviously not of God because it said that we shouldn't be clashing cymbals. That was their logic. And so I threw a stick at their head. <laughs> no, I didn't. But I did crash a cymbal in their ear. That was mean. That's why I erased it out of my notes. Lord, why did I say it? You guys, it breaks my heart to hear those things. Why? Because it's so legalistic, man. God created music. Do you realize that? Like, Music is being sung in heaven all the time. When we get to heaven, you guys, listen. Listen, if you're here all the time and you're like, I can't wait for worship to be over. Wow, heaven's going to be interesting for you. <laughs> the reality is, you guys, nothing we do or, or don't do, hear this, nothing we do or don't do gets us any closer to God's perfection. Like we in and of ourselves are not going to ever attain his perfection. It's not possible. It's only by believing and putting our faith in him that we're ever going to get there. And listen, the path that God laid out for us is, is amazing. Jesus came here on this earth, lived a perfect life, the life that we could never live. Why? Because he was God in flesh. He told us exactly the plan the whole way through. Hey, guys, I'm coming. I'm going to die. In three days, I'll say hello to you again and you'll know that all this was true. He died. He was resurrected. He rose again. He proved everything that he said he was going to do by doing it. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Verse 6 says this. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So first Abraham, the father of all the people of Israel, and then Paul comes with another, another slugger, right? Another heavy hitter, David, the best and most respected king of Israel. The guy that, man, next to Abraham, everybody's like, oh yeah, King David. He was the man. He was so awesome. He was a man after God's heart. He was so great. What did his works look like, guys? I think everybody has the same thing in their mind, don't they? He slept with one of his best friend's wives and then conspired to have him murdered. Wow. It's not very good works, David. I think that was probably negative nine million for you in your bank account of righteousness, right? And yet he was known as the man after God's heart. 
And Paul was using both of these men to prove the same point. Neither of them, regardless of how much people looked up to them, regardless of just how much history had turned them into these little demigods, and I think we do that a lot with Paul too, church. I've heard it taught so many times in such a way that Paul apparently didn't sin. And I'm like, no, he said he sinned. I'm the chief of all sinners. How do you remove that? You can't. We're all messed up. Jesus isn't. He's the one that gets the glory. He's the one that we should make famous. Not anybody else. Not Billy Graham. Not anybody. Him. They didn't ever live lives or do works good enough to get them to heaven. And Paul's showing us, man, David, he understood that it wasn't his works that got him there. It was imputed righteousness, you guys. You know what the word imputed means? It means, it's a legal term again. It's, it's this idea that it's just given to you freely. I put this on you even though that's not really for you. It would be like someone, you waking up in the morning and someone imputes a million dollars into your bank account. And you're like, before that goes away, let's spend it. <laughs> you get my point? Like, that's what imputing means. So what's Paul saying here, man? He's like, David realized that this righteousness was imputed by God and it was apart from works. This quote for you note takers is from Psalm 32, verse one and two. This guy who slept with the wife of one of his closest friends and then had Uriah murdered. Man, David was a real piece of work, wasn't he? Verse nine. It says, does this blessedness then come from the circumcision to the circumcision, upon, <laughs> let me start over. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Remember, here in the church in Rome, it was started by Jews. Most historians believe, most scholars believe that the Jews came back from the day of Pentecost and planted this church in Rome. So I'm sorry if you have a Catholic bend. The Apostle Peter, by most historical accounts, couldn't have been there to start this church. So here they are, they're doing these things, but then we talked about the fact that the emperor had kicked all the Jews out after that. And so you had this Gentile church now and these beginnings of these Jews coming back in after that emperor died. And so there was this kind of mixture and there was all this kind of stuff going on there. And so that's why he's saying, is this just for the Jews, the circumcised, or is it for the uncircumcised also? Verse 10, he says, how then was it accounted? While he was circumcised, oh, forgive me. So he's saying, for, <laughs> let's start over. Verse nine, guys, I'm so sorry. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And while he, we, uh, while he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be called the father of all to those who believe, those who are uncircumcised, that righteousness may be imputed to them also, and the father of, circ uh, the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also those who walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Do you guys really realize what we read in Genesis chapter 15 was two chapters before God said to him, hey, go ahead and circumcise yourself and all your children from that point on. 
when he promised him, when he made his covenant with him and said, hey, this is my plan for your life, that's when he did it. We don't read for another two chapters. I don't know what that time frame is, but I bet it was a decent amount of time. That here he goes. And then finally, he's like, you know what's going to be the outward expression of this? Circumcision. So what's Paul getting at? The Jews have no right to stand there and be like, look at us. We circumcise ourselves, and that is why God is pouring out his grace on our lives. No. God pours out his grace on all humanity because he chooses to, regardless of what you're doing on the outside. He poured out his grace already. Do you understand that? So Paul pulls down this next pride point. Your circumcision doesn't really mean anything. And Paul's making it clear again, you guys, that God desires all to come to him, not just the Jews. And even this circumcision, this outward sign that God gave the Jews to be a sign of set-apartness was only of value in any way, shape, or form, the same way we talked last week, that my tattoos are only of value, the cross, right? The key row, which if you don't know what this means, this was the uh, Holy Roman Empire's, they flew under this banner. You know the ichthus, the little fish? That was the nice way to say, hi, I'm a Christian. This was the, I'm a Christian and I don't care what you think. That's why I like it. But these don't matter if I'm at the bar getting drunk every weekend. These don't matter if everyone here knows that I'm having an affair on my wife, of which I'm doing neither. But they don't matter, do they? I don't care how many outward signs I put on myself to make myself look like a Christian. None of it matters unless my life lines up to it. None of it matters unless my faith is squarely in Jesus Christ. Then it means a little something, hopefully. Verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham, or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. We talked about that, right? The law shows you you have a need for a Savior. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Is that 100% accurate? Yes, in the sense that he's saying it. But how many of you guys, even when you were a little kid, knew that you were going to get a pow-pow because you touched that thing you weren't supposed to touch, even if your parents said not to touch it? You just kind of had that feeling in your heart. That's not for me to touch. And yet you're like, hey, I want to touch that. So there's obviously this idea of transgression. Do you get my, my point? Verse 16, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the promise that God gave didn't come through the law at all. If we want to be technical, you guys think about this. The law didn't exist yet when Abraham was walking around. We have hundreds of years until Moses stood up on a mountain and brought down the first set, and saw Aaron making the golden calf, and everyone being debaucherous, and so he threw those down, and then he's like, oh, dang it, I gotta go up and get another set. It was hundreds of years before this, you guys. It's ridiculous to say, well, Abraham was obviously following the law well. There was no law yet. So obviously, that wasn't the point. Obviously, the law couldn't fulfill the promise. We 
need faith. We can't just try harder for perfection. It's not going to work. Spurgeon had this to say about this section of scripture. He said this, grace and faith are congruous. means they work together, right? And will draw together in the same chariot. But grace and merit or works are contrary. The one to the other and pull opposite ways. And therefore God has not chosen to yoke them together. You guys get what he's saying? If you think you're getting to heaven on your works, Christian, you're pulling against the very grace that God's providing for you, Christian. If you think your works get you there and you don't know Jesus yet, then you don't understand grace and you're getting nowhere. That's, th- those are your two options. You need God's grace. We all need God's grace. We need to understand deeper and deeper and deeper, day by day, his grace. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that he had promised, he was also, what he had promised, he is also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul here summing up the entire life of Abraham and Sarah. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And it says, and Abraham believed. He completely trusted. And I know you guys might wonder, like, well, then where does the doubt come in? The doubt's just there because we're human. But there's a difference between disbelief and doubt. Do you understand? I have absolute faith that God knows my last breath. I do. But when I'm about to wreck the car... And I'm crying out to God, do I have any, do I have a little doubt that that might be the last, do you get my point? There's times when I'm like, oh God, what are you doing here? Ah!" I still don't have any doubt that it's God that's going to fix it or do it or or end it, whatever he's choosing to do in my life. Does that make sense? There's a difference, you guys. So yeah, we can say absolutely. Abraham believed and completely trusted. He had faith in what God said. And that was in spite of the fact that the guy was a hundred years old, ancient, And Sarah had never borne a child up to that point. She was past the age of childbearing. She was barren. By human standards, this is a ridiculous statement. She's not going to have a kid to this old guy, Abraham. This is not going to happen. And we saw Abraham screwed up a lot. But he never stopped believing, God, somehow you're going to accomplish this. You know where we saw Abraham's faith grow? Remember when Isaac was finally born? And then God said, you know what? Go sacrifice him. I love the heart of Abraham. He's like, okay. I mean, that really doesn't make any sense. But we're already way past making sense. Right? And so he he took him up there. And and 
I love the heart here, you guys. Do you realize that Abraham had no doubt that somehow, some way, Isaac was coming back? Do you get that picture? He was like, I, I, I don't understand why you're asking me this, God, but I trust you. It's amazing. I want to talk a quick moment here about this verse that we read. In verse 17, it says, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. You guys, that is thrown around a lot in the health and wealth gospel world. I'm making things come out as though they didn't exist. You know, just this phrase that it's somehow you that's going to manifest something. That's not the context of this verse. Do you get that? Who can make things that don't exist exist? God. Have you ever created anything? Have you ever looked in your yard and said, man, I really want a nice sugar maple so that I can tap it. And oh, by the way, I want it to be fully grown. Pop. Did that ever happen for you? If it didn't, Grace and I would have a ton of sugar maples in our yard. I can't do it. I, I can't even create enough to like go buy a tree and put it in the ground. It's still on God to get that thing to grow. I can't make it grow. Do you understand? We're really out of control. So to take that verse out of context like so many do is wrong, you guys. Again, what do we have faith in? Do we have faith that God's going to do something or do we have faith in our own faith that we're going to somehow manifest something out into the world? It's just not reality. Verse 23 says this. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. There's that word again. So Paul takes his whole point of belief and justification through faith, and he brings it home. He's like, look, we've looked at Abraham. We've looked at David. We saw that it was never their works that meant anything to their relationship to God. Their works didn't add anything to God or to their relationship with him. It was only faith and belief in God who was going to call those things that do not exist as though they did. He was going to make a way, you guys, where there was no way. And the same is true for us. Listen, I gotta say this. Being a Christian, being a Christian is not showing up to church once in a while. Being a Christian is not showing up every time the church doors are open. Being a Christian is not giving of your finances to this church or to any church. Being a Christian is not providing meals to the homeless. I know some of you guys right now are like, are you I don't, I don't know about this guy. Being a Christian is not just serving for everything and doing anything you can. Being a Christian is not going on missions trips. They're all good things. They're all things that actually God has called us to do, right? Help the poor. Go on mission. Go see and get out of your own context. Go to the DR. Visit Abate. Come back home to your home and be like, wow. Places. God, you've really blessed me. Go there and realize that you get a chance to just pour out on people. And, and the coolest part is when you come back, you realize you've been poured into way more. It's amazing, you guys. I'm not acting like any of these things are bad and we shouldn't do them. Not at all. I'm saying if that's your definition of Christianity, do you see how that's works-based? 
Do you see how that's you saying, oh God, I'm making my account big. That's what I'm getting out. That's not being a Christian. That's not what it, the definition of it is, you guys. Do you know what it is? Doing these good things doesn't get you in with God. It's not a ticket to heaven. A Christian is a person that comes to the realization that without Jesus, there is absolutely no hope. That's a Christian. That believes with every pore of their being that the only way this is going to be okay is by accepting what Jesus did on the cross. That sees that Jesus is the way that God's given to the world. That all of our past, present, and future sins were put on Jesus. And he did it for everybody. He did it for everybody. And you guys, I, I need you to understand something. We, and I've heard this question, we actually we were just talking about it at the men's conference, this idea of, you know, like, how does the Old Testament guys get to heaven? Did you ever wonder that? Well, we read this thing in Peter about where Jesus was when he was on the cross. We talked about this when we were in the book of Matthew. There's this thing called Abraham's bosom. It was kind of like where all the Old Testament folks went that were walking in faith in God. So think Abraham, think Moses, think these people. Abraham, David, I'm going to name two more. Samson and Jonah. Samson and Jonah, look at their life. That was a train wreck. But they were in Abraham's bosom. Why? Because it wasn't about what they did. They didn't have to be shining examples of amazing and honorable lives. They trusted completely in the God who saves. It was for the people that went to the temple and slit the throat of the spotless lamb, not because that was what they just had to do, not because you just come to church on a Sunday morning and check your block. No, people that were like, God, I have no other way, and this is the way you've given me, and so I'm just putting everything I've got. Lord, I, I know this doesn't completely forgive me, but I'm asking, take this garbage out of my life, and I'm putting it on this lamb because that's the way you've given me right now. Those people, you guys, when Jesus died and rose, or died, died on the cross and got put in the tomb, do you know what he did? He went down to Abraham's bosom, and he said, let's go. Let's go. You've been waiting on me. Here I am. You walked in faith to God. I'm the answer. I'm it. And that's where we see the first zombie apocalypse, right? Because it says in Matthew, this weird set of verses, right? These guys came up and they're like, hey, wow, that temple's nice, right? I don't know what the heck that was about. That had to be a crazy time. But where did they come from if they didn't come from Abraham's bosom? Do you understand? So it all lines up. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but in God's economy, it does. So guys, if you're here today, and I need you to hear this, I don't care if you've been in church your whole life, I have to ask you a very important question. Have you put every egg in the basket that is Jesus? Have you put every egg there? Have you completely abandoned any other hope for your life except the work that Jesus did on the cross? Because the truth is there's no other way to be right with God. Your works are never gonna cut it. Your works don't work. Your relatives being good Christian people, your grandpa being a pastor and your dad being a pastor doesn't mean, doesn't mean anything to you. It's a good lineage. It's, you have a way better starting point than I did. Still doesn't change you. It doesn't change your destination or where you're putting your hope. Because I want everyone to honestly examine their lives. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want any area of my life 
for me to be putting hope in anything other than Jesus. I want to be his ride or die. You guys heard that phrase before? Ride or die. I'm riding with Jesus until he takes me home. Die. I want to be his ride or die. I want to be with him. I want to do what he asks me to do. And again, it's not about my work. So when I screw up, I don't run away from Jesus. No, I run even more towards him. And I'm like, oh God, here I am again. Oh God, forgive me for saying those words. Father, forgive me for the way I acted. That was totally out of line, Father. And I know you already know that. Would you forgive me? Help me not to keep doing that. That's repentance. Because I want to put my eggs in his basket because no other basket is good enough. If you're here today and you're not a believer and you think, well, I'm, I can coexist and I think there's just a lot of ways to get to heaven because that's how everybody talks before they become a Christian. <laughs> that's judgmental. Sorry, Lord, <laughs> forgive me. God help me. I would say this, you guys, I'm very afraid for you. I'm very afraid for you if that's how you feel. Because I really do believe this. I believe it with all of my being. I put every egg in this basket. And the truth is, if I'm wrong and the atheist is right, then I take a dirt nap and disintegrate. But if I'm right, man, and I'm pretty sure God's right. And I'm not pretty sure. I'm 100% sure. I have no doubt in my heart at all that this is right. And I've got a lot to look forward to. And so do you, Christian. And that should never make us look at an atheist or look at a person that thinks that coexisting is really a, a, you know, an, not an oxymoronic statement to make, even though, yes, it is. But the reality is, you guys, it should never bring us to a place where we're like in judgment of them. It should bring us to a place of heartache and saying, oh, you need to know what I know. You need to understand that Jesus is for real and, and he actually did what he said he did. And, and that's the only way to get in right relationship with God. And I promise you that when you do it, I promise you two things. Number one, you will have a peace that passes understanding. And number two, your life will be wrecked because there's a real enemy called Satan. Yay! It will be wrecked in the most amazing way, well, though, won't it? The harder it gets, the more I'm just like, man, God, thank you that I, this is as close to hell as I'll ever get. This is the worst it'll ever get. Finally, you guys, turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the little just reminder, promise I want to give to you guys as we go. If you're here today and you haven't accepted Christ, can I just tell you there are always people up front here to pray with you. Church, if you came and you visited with somebody, grab the person you visited, you came with. We need to be people that can just tell people about Jesus. That's our job, right? Go out into the world, tell people about Jesus, and live a life that shines Christ. Any one of us should be able to bring people to Jesus. It's not a special pastor job. It's a special Christian job. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You guys, that is a beautiful and amazing promise we can hold on to. Right, Christian? Let's pray.
God, I praise your name, Lord, that you saw fit to send Jesus here to make a way where there was no way, God, to create space for us to come into right relationship with you, Lord, even though, Lord, you had every right in your justice to just roll us up like a Play-Doh ball and start over. I'm thankful, Father, that before you even created, you knew the plan. You are so good to us, God, and we don't deserve it. And Lord, we get all bogged down in this idea of thinking somehow, Lord, be walking out in pride and thinking that our goodness or, or what we consider goodness, Lord God, is something when it's not. Lord, even Hitler had good days. God, if that's what I had to do with, then there would be no need for grace. But Lord, we know you poured out your grace and you pour it out and pour it out and pour it out, God. It's never ending. Lord, I pray for every Christian here, God, that they would never use grace as a doormat, God, that the more grace, the more understanding of your grace that they have in their lives, Lord God, that it would lead them to a place of obedience, God. Not because they need to do the good work, but because you have good works for us to walk out. God, we get the privilege of serving you. God, we have the privilege of serving one another, of loving this world well through speaking truth, God, through, through just being about your business in our workplaces and in our families. God, we have such amazing, gracious privileges that you've given us. And Lord, I don't know why. I really don't. It seems like the most inefficient method. <laughs> But Lord, if you were about efficiency again, I think you would have rolled us up like a Play-Doh ball and started over. Lord, you're about relationship. You want to pour out your love on us and you have through Jesus. God, if there be anyone here today that doesn't know you yet, God, I pray they understand that their works mean nothing. They can be the most altruistic, the most gracious. Lord, I've met plenty of people that are atheists that are way cooler and way better than me. I'm so thankful that's not what it has to do with. God, I pray, Father, that there would not be one person that walks out of here today not knowing you. God, I pray, Father, that there would not be one person that walks out of here today still believing that somehow, some way, their works are going to mean something to them. God, I pray that no one walks out of here today thinking that their bad stuff means anything as well. Because, God, you paid for it. I pray, Lord, that they would stop walking around holding on to it, but instead, God, give it to you and repent. Repentance is the most beautiful word in the world, Lord. It's our opportunity to just say, here's my garbage. Here is this stinky pile of rotten trash. And I know it's gross, God, and you knew it was even grosser than I will ever understand. Your sense of smell, your sense of eyes of seeing it, Lord, is better than even mine, and I think it's pretty gross. But God, I know you just want to take it so that I don't need it anymore, so that I can walk in the freedom of grace. God, would you help me to walk in obedience and grace? Teach us what that looks like, Lord. Father, we want to make an impact for you in this kingdom, and I pray, God, that you would begin to do that today in us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.